the, the Boga Honey Podcast. That's why I, I tried not to have camps on my bow. I don't have to deal with slippage or anything Shut like up. that. You just put a new string on there, you're fine. What is Boga? But seriously, that's the dumbest thing you've ever seen. Go- I am all about Just strap it to your pack. Really appreciate the fact that you're from Michigan and not Georgia. You don't want to be the next Mark Kenyon. No. I'm a shit show. <laughs> that's, that spot's taken. You can see how pathetic Jared's face is right now. <laughs> because that's how it looked. It was just like, is this good enough? Hey, everybody. Before we begin, we're going to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this show possible. First up is Vortex Optics. We've been using their glass for a long time. Uh, everything from their binoculars, spotting scopes, rangefinders, and a new thing called Vortex Edge. Vortex Edge is their new world-class firearm training course, and they, they're going to provide courses on precision rifle, uh, pistol, a couple of military tactics, and of course, hunting and outdoors. And also, their spring and summer apparel line is dropping soon. So make sure to head over to vortex.com apparel and save yourself 20%. By using what code? BOGA20. Nice. Trophy line, tree saddles. They are a one-stop shop. Sticks, platforms, yeah, saddles. It's uh, And they just came out with a new EDP platform. It's a smaller, lighter, stronger version of the mission platform made in the U.S. It's the perfect size for us as mobile hunters. It's going to be available this April, so make sure to go and get yourself one. Save yourself 10% while you're doing it and use the code BOGAHUNTINGTL10. Don't miss any letters in that. Go check them out. If we said it once, we said it a thousand times. Arrows are the lifeblood of the archery industry. Vector arrows, vector custom arrows are the arrows that we shoot. Jared and I specifically shoot the vector HMR, the vector hammers. Hammer them. Yep. They're a four millimeter micro diameter shaft that are super strong, extremely durable. You're going to go to the website. All you have to do is input your specs and they're going to build the arrows directly for your specs. So head over to vectorcustomshop.com and they're going to hook you up. We do a lot of things on our phones. One of the things that Jared and I have found to be especially useful on our phone is our HuntWise app. It's the base. It's basically the ultimate hunting tool yep. set. Land boundaries. They've got HuntCast 2.0, where it, it's an advanced hunting forecast to give you specific times and days that are the best days to hunt. And they also provide a safe and social space for hunters, where you can post pictures, share stories. You won't get a graphic image, yeah, you know, Instagram not- cover over it. <laughs> Uncensored and unbiased. Yeah, download the HuntWise app today. All right, welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today I have TJ with us, um, and TJ is, uh, while you're closely associated, you could say, with the traditional bow hunter magazine. Traditional bow hunter magazine. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, what so it is. <laughs> what's your uh, what's your background there? How'd you get involved? Oh, my background is in uh, avionics technology. I worked on uh, military aircraft for a number of years, and then I went to work for the FAA and. Uh, did a lot of things for them, worked for AF1 back in Washington, D.C., but out of Seattle area. And okay. so I did, uh, I worked at converting almost all of the air route traffic control centers in the United States. I shouldn't say that. A good chunk of them into from analog, you know, magnetic tapes to digital. And that was the last project I had uh, besides certifying all the communication systems for DIA before they shut down Stapleton in Denver. And that was my last job sometime back in the mid early 90s. In 96, I walked away from the feds after 17 years to, to actually run the magazine. 
So the background was, is that I was always strong in English. I think I get worse as I go older. Yep. Spelling really got bad after reading a lot of bad stuff from people. <laughs> but, um, you know, and I sold some, some pieces way back when, but um, we were starting to, to build a traditional club here in Idaho way back when, back in the 80s. And we didn't have one. I just had a state organization, which I was one time I was the past vice president of the Idaho State Bowhunters. And so uh, we didn't, we were still working on that. And in the meantime, I had this idea about doing a newsletter for the organization. So, you know, I had a computer, I think it was a Mac plus those little tiny things. If you remember oh, yeah. way back when, yeah. okay. So, so this is in like uh, 86 sometime around then. And uh, the more and more, when we got, you know, to talking, I had this idea. It was just that you know, there was an old uh, Hewlett Packard uh, commercial at one time back in the eighties. And, some guy was, you know, he just like walking down us hall and he had this idea for something and he just said, what if, well, I was taking a shower one night and I thought, Oh, what if, what if I made this into a four color, you know, on newsstand magazine, because there, we weren't being, we were not being recognized or even catered to with any of the other bowhunting magazines, you know, bow hunter, which I wrote some articles for, uh, was bow and arrow hunting, which is now defunct and, uh, Peterson's, it was Peterson's archery. They changed it to Peterson's bow hunting after that. Um, so, you know, and I talked to Marion about possibly doing a column for bow hunter. And he said, well, there's really not that much interest in it. And so I said, fine, then, you know, I will do something on my own. So it kind of started like that. And <clears throat> at that time, there was a bunch of us that our club had 500 you know, members here, the Treasure Valley bow hunters and mixed group. And there was, you know, at, at one time there was one or two people shot traditional and pretty soon there's 30, 50 people shooting traditional. Hmm. And, you know, and then, you know, we just, every, what we did on Friday night is down the, down the hill from where Larry and I lived, there was a, uh, an indoor range, an archery shop. And we would go down every Friday during the off season and winters. And, um, and we would shoot. Well, it eventually got to where I was taking down my old slide projector. I don't know if you ever see those manual yep. ones, you got to pull it back, click it and push it in. And we had all these slides that we had picked up and other people's of wild game, different animals from all over. And so we'd hang up a, a white sheet down inside there, you know, at about 15 yards, 20 yards. And then we'd put up the slide and shoot arrows at it. Okay. And it was something that was fun. You know, this was before dart system was ever made sure. any of that stuff. We were doing it long before Jay decided to build the dart system. And, um, and it was kind of, it was fun. It was a lot of fun, but it got to where we got to the point where after several months we were setting it up and having someone man the projector. And we, you know, we got to the point to where, boom, it would come on for, you know, basically start about five seconds and you had to pull an arrow out of your quiver, knock it and shoot. And then the picture would go blank. That's cool. Then you'd put it back on when everybody's <laughs> done shooting and you see where you shot. And this went on for a long time. And then in the spring, um, the owner said, well, he, you know, a bunch of his, his friends wanted in, they wanted to come do that. And I said, well, but they wanted us to leave it up and they wanted to use their sights. And, their, yeah. and I mean, it's, it's kind of dumb to, at 20 yards indoors is here's a picture of a mountain goat and you got your binoculars. It's like, you know, this is, yeah. you know, kind of ruined it for us. So we just walked away from it. But in the meantime, <clears throat> this happened. Um, it was probably late November, early December of 1988. And I had this idea. And so a bunch of us, and you know, after we were done, we'd all go down to the leader house, which was a couple blocks away and have beers. And so a different beers, all kinds of weird stuff from around the world. 
And so this one night, it was snowing really bad. And we went down there. It was probably about a couple miles away. And I think there was five of us in there and drinking beer. And I had this idea. So I kind of spit it out. And boy, I tell you what, the negativity from everybody is <laughs> tremendous. They're like, oh, you'll never succeed. That's been tried. You'll fail, whatever. And I'm, <clears throat> and then, you know, I'm going, huh, that's kind of weird. You know, I, so I felt kind of dejected and I, yeah, I was kind of you know, off the wall. So I said, well, I finished my beer and I said, well, I'll go home. So I went home in the snowstorm and was up the next morning about 6.30 or 7. And uh, wife brought me a cup of coffee. I'm sitting in the front room. I'm looking up at the mountains and the ski resort. And this big lumbering body comes by the picture glass window and knocks on the door. And it's Larry Fisher. And he was with me the night before. And then one thing he did is he coughed in his beer and he said, oh, that's a hell of a dream you know, the <laughs> night before. So he showed up and I said, hey, well, how are you doing? He goes, oh, yeah, I'm not doing so good. I go, what's the matter? He goes, I couldn't sleep at all last night. I was thinking about what you said. I want to do this with you, is what he said. And that's what got the ball rolling. Hmm. And so uh, I had no idea what we were going to do or how to, you know, I, I, had, I had some ideas, but I said, you know, I don't even know how to run a magazine right. at all. <clears throat> but it can't be that hard, right? <laughs> but so it was really, it, I gave ourselves eight months. I went ahead January 3rd of 89. I solidified the company in the state of Idaho as a, as a, it was a, a sub chapter S actually it was, no, I'll take that back. It was a partnership. And the dumb thing was, is I got five other people involved. So there were six of us sure. that started yep. by the time we put out the first issue, it was down to five within a couple of years, it was down to three through natural attrition and getting rid of the deadwood people who weren't going to work. But, um, so we started off in January, got some letterhead and everybody pulled, I, I think we put in about $1,500 total between six of us overall to get going to get you know whatever software what we didn't have software at the time everything had to be typeset so everything came in and we would proof it all and then take it to someone and pay to have them run <laughs> they would type out these little toilet paper rolls right so yep. you'd have two and three column format so it's either going to be 2.25 wide or three and a half wide for text plus the uh, the, the gutters and so they would type it all for us and we paid a lot of money for that. And then it come back and then you had to wax stuff on these cardboards. So for every, you know, like for every 80 or hundred pages of the magazine, you have a piece of cardboard and you would wax that text into there and it had to be perfectly straight. You'd wax the ads in. And then I had this big stack of all this text and the picture, the, not the pictures that we told the pictures where they're supposed to go. Right. They all had to be scanned outside. There was no home computing at the time that could do any of this. That's it. I'm calling a break. You're calling a break? Break in the episode. This Four. is a timeout. Timeout in the episode, and we are going to thank a couple more sponsors, so deal with it. It's no secret that I love traditional archery, and I love Bivouac Boco. Jim and Georgia, years of experience. Each bow is handcrafted, one of a kind. I've got special camo limbs that nice. they did special for me. They look awesome, and they stand the test of time, but it's looking great, shoots great. Check them out at bivouacboco.com. Wild Pursuit Wellness makes premium CBD products. It's all-natural, broad-spectrum CBD, meaning that there is less than 0.0% THC. It can be ingested or used topically on the skin to help with muscle soreness or joints. We, we use it a lot after a long hike. Use promo code BOGA for 20% off at checkout. Check them out, wildpursuitwellness.com. So you're doing no. this by hand based on an idea you had that most of your friends didn't like. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and in a sport, you could say that 
wasn't you know the most popular thing especially you know after hearing from a magazine a couple magazines that it's just not people aren't as interested so you still despite all that went out and started hand making these magazines well the first issue we found out about software after that for page layout programs but in the meantime we still had to have every picture had to be scanned drum scanned from a friend of mine that had a they're out of business all those people are out of business those typesetters everybody who did all that scanning because you can scan everything and everything's done in-house now i mean yep. i do everything on a computer i upload it i mean after you had those plates done you had to take them over to somebody they put them on a vacuum board and they have a big still camera and they'll shoot you know eight by ten uh photos yeah in black and whites of each of these pages okay you can imagine the amount of cost for that yeah so then i bring back 30 pounds of film and all this other crap and you had to it was fifty dollars to ship all the stuff to the printer over in Oregon, and I mean, it was it was ridiculous what it cost. I mean, it's it, the the amount of work, and it's changed so much now. And now I upload everything to FTP sites. You know, nothing there is nothing handled. Yeah, it just goes right from the printer, right? Well, it's yeah. I mean, I build it all on a on a, on a computer, and um, and I have a lot of help. But it's kind of really strange to go from manually building a magazine, which mm-hmm. people don't understand what that's like. Everyone, you know, everybody today is computer literate, but 32 years ago, 33 years ago, when I started, there was none of that out there. And even then they had Quark Express, which was pretty Neanderthal compared to what it can sure. do today. And I never did get into uh, InDesign by, Adobe, although I have it, I just never, I've been using Quark forever. It's easiest thing for me. I know how to work it. Um, and I've learned so much with it. It's, 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 it's a great program actually. So it's nice because I can output everything to the PDF directly when I want it. I can look at everything. I can approve it. I upload it to FTP. They send me back a digital proof. Look at that. You know, everything's fine. And all that mailing costs went away, yeah. which was tremendous yeah. of doing all that. So, you, so that's really how it all started. I mean, it took, we, we put out that first issue, took eight months. And I mean, it was, we were scrapping to get that done. Sure. And, you know, we didn't have any money. You know, we were just trying to pay people $15 for an article just to try and get something. Right. And then, uh, but I only decided to only do it four times a year. And I figured, you know, worst case scenario, we'll go for a year. If we don't make any money, we'll fold it. No sure. loss. And we'll have enough money to pay everybody back. After we put out the first issue, I knew it was a go. Really? Yeah, every, it was sold so well. The second issue sold out. We had 25,000 printers sold out the second issue, like in no time. And all. I had to reprint another 7,500 just to keep it going. So the numbers skyrocketed from that. And uh, so here we are, 190 magazines later or whatever it is, 32 years later. And, you know, it's one thing that's really tough is print media is taking a huge bang, you know, a huge hit from yeah. internet because... You know, and it's, 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 you know, it's, there's a lot of good things about the internet, a lot of bad things. It's really hurt a lot of magazines and, uh, and really bad. Like you remember uh, field and stream was put out for 115 years, 12 issues a year, hundred and something pages. Yeah. Now it's four times a year and it's 60 pages. And, um, and that's the same thing, How, you know, outdoor, see sports, the field folded. I outdoor life's the same thing. They went to only four times a year. They're and digital included, now, aren't they? Aren't they all well, digital? they may only be digital. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, everyone, everyone's coming off the newsstand because we're being thrown off the newsstand by stores anyways. They don't want magazines anymore, and it's really not cost-effective. Nobody makes money selling magazines on the newsstand sure. at all. Okay. Everybody loses it, but you know, you're hoping that your advertisement will cover it. 
but uh, you know we were we started looking at those crunching those numbers and it was like it was senseless to to stay sure. on there and we've done a hell of a lot better just going direct and and well you know we do the 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 printed magazine but we also do very well in our digital magazine yeah i can imagine that's both. yeah that's i mean that's where a lot of things are headed but i mean so just dialing it back um talk to me a little bit about like um traditional bow hunting uh because you know now here here you are um after 33 years of running you know the uh traditional archery magazine you know how, how did you get into it how has it changed over these 33 years it seems like i'm seeing more of it now but you know i want to see i want to know how that how that what that's looked like over that 33 year period glasses here so i can see better um well it's continued to grow there was a little stagnant part for a while you know but for the most part we saw steady growth for a long time but then the internet kind of hurt things because as you well know i'm going to go back um everybody's an expert anymore and and people can put whatever they want on the internet and they have a lot of followers and all but there's you know how many how many places do you have to go to find out what the truth is what the real story is sure i mean you can f- take one subject and throw it out there online you're going to get six different professionals yeah. supposedly, yeah. and it's a mess because there's a lot of bad information there's a lot of good information but there's a lot of bad or misinformation out there um so do you see a lot of then the problem with today is that you know most people have the attention span of a gnat sure and so you know, if you can't grab their attention within seven seconds, uh, they're flipping a page. So they're going to change, uh, you know, on your, your website, they're going to keep jumping around. And so the idea is how do you keep traffic on there? Well, you have to change it up with a magazine though. The nice thing about that is that, and especially for advertisers is that the magazine's forever. It's always there. We sell back issues all the time. They just, I mean, from 20, 30 years ago. Sure. Well, sure, we have a lot of them sold out, but we have a large percentage. I say probably 35, 40% of whatever print is sold out, but the rest of them, people buy them all the time. The problem for us is that people are calling advertisers who've been dead for 20 years, and that phone number's been tramped by sure. three or four <laughs> people. So they call, and we used to get phone calls all the time and say, please take my phone number out of your magazine. I go, uh, it's not that in is there. funny oh. because people buy these back issues and they see these ads and they call those people because they want that product they don't know that they've been out of business for 30 years 20 years or been dead for 10 or 15 right years. and i mean it's 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 because i go back i look at those like uh, i go you know i probably say 80 percent of the people those first years they're not around anymore right. you know and, and they've been gone for decades so it's really that's changed quite a bit um but, you know, permitting is not going to go away. It's contracted quite a bit. But what we see is that people want that tangible object. Mm-hmm. If you're like me, I don't want to sit down and read an ebook. I don't want, I'm tired of looking at my computer. I would want, I have a newspaper. I get newspapers. I want to read the newspaper. I want to sit down and have my coffee. I want to read some damn printed text. I don't want to look at an e-reader. I don't want to read it on, on the phone or on the computer and i'm finding a lot of people are escaping that and going back to books going back to buying magazines uh buying newspapers instead of trying to go online number one is that half your half your media online is biased anyway so you got to be careful right. with that <laughs> so it's so you know you don't even know where to turn but there's something tangible about having a magazine you can hold it in your hand and we, even the people who do buy the digital subscription about 90 percent of them also want that printed 
and this is really huge for the Australians and New Zealand and people down there in Europe, is that they still want it. And it's expensive to mail that thing. Oh, right. God, it's uh, what, about 70 something dollars a year to send six magazines over, and it's, they got to go first class and it's ridiculous. Yeah. And we don't make any money on that. And it's in, and, but they still do it because they want it. Even though they have a digital subscription, they can get it on the 15th every other month. Six weeks later, the magazine shows up after it comes across the pond and they love it. And I see these photos from all my friends in Europe and Germany and you know, all over the place, South Africa. And they have, they, they finally came in. I'm going, cool, you know, you got it. But they've already read it. So online. So we see that as that it is like a collector's item in that aspect. And if you go back and you look at those magazines, there's a tremendous amount of, of information that dates back to the 1989, you know, and there's a lot of good information. In fact, people all the time are pulling out saying, we should, you know, let's do another piece on this. I'm going, well, we sure can, because that's timeless. Yeah, just good. Uh, it's good information. Yeah, and which well, doesn't know, change. No, and I, the reason why I want to start this too, you know, James, is that I, I didn't know how to make a wood arrow. I right. didn't know how to make a Flemish twist string. I want to know these things. And sure. the only person I knew was Ron Robison. He passed away in 93 here. And he was our, our last boyer in Boise. Old gentleman, great guy. And uh, Rick Hinton did a piece on him. I think it was like around the wood stove with Ron Robison way back, uh, probably 28 years ago. But, you know, he showed me a lot and very informative. And uh, I mean, how to make stuff. He made his own feather burners. He made oh, all yeah. this equipment inside this little was an old whorehouse, believe it or not. <laughs> and so him and his wife lived upstairs where the girls were at. And then down below, he built his shop. That's funny. And uh, yeah, and uh, but it was kind of interesting is that he made all of his own equipment, everything, huh. everything. And so that kind of, I said, you know, how do we get that information out? Because I was seeing more and more people want to shoot traditional. Yeah. And same thing like Larry, they were shooting compounds. And then, you know, Larry saw me with my longbow. He's well, you know, he, said, well, he goes out and buys a Brackenberry recurve. Yeah. And so he's shooting that, but he's shooting, you know, aluminum arrows. And I'm, you know, make, I finally make wood arrows. Like, oh, I wish I could do that. Well, they keep saying that. Then pretty soon everybody's doing it. Yeah. Know? Yep. And so it was kind of fun to see that. Um, well, it's nice it's to have been, those, those past articles. And as yeah. I, I've been seeing on your website, you've been taking a lot of that just solid, you know, foundational information and putting it online so you can, you know, it, you can quick go right to it, you know, exactly what to look for and you can kind of locate that great bit of information that you're trying to learn. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> the nice thing about the website is that it's slowly getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. We have a lot of it as original material. It's not in the magazines, but we do have a lot of good uh, archival stuff of back issues and things, how to's, uh, you know, uh, bow studies and things like that. So yeah. we're adding to it all the time. So there, like you said, there's a wealth of information on the website, uh, an awful lot. And we have, on average, about 11,000 unique visitors a month to the website. It's, it's really doing very well. Yeah, that's no very complaints. Cool. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, considering what the, the printed market's been doing. Well, the thing with that, too, is that a lot of uh, it's, it, it's hard to explain that. You know, as a publisher, I, get, I make the least amount of money off every, you know, that everybody makes. So you have a national distributor who handles getting it to the wholesalers. Well, yeah. they take a cut. The wholesalers take a cut. The store owners take a cut, plus they ask for an RDA, which is on top of that, it's a retail display allowance. You have to pay to print these. You got to pay to ship them to like Clark distribution. Mm -hmm. And you got to pay Clark's fees to mail them out to everybody. You got to pay for the damn things coming back and being shredded. You don't make any money. You know, you're losing a hundred grand a year on the newsstand. 
and it's senseless. It's just, it was, it was stupid. <clears throat> but you realize that everyone takes their cuts. So for every dollar out of that, I'd be lucky to see 10 cents. Sure. And so, you know, out of for a dollar, if, if we're lucky, I mean, everybody takes a cut. Well, then what happened is that they want to do away with, they only, a lot of, a lot of places only want to keep the top selling 5%. Cosmo, L, Red Book, these ladies magazines. Um, and so what happens is that even though we had a sell through of, you know, something like 80%, it wasn't the 90% that they wanted. Yeah. And so we got cut from a lot of places. I mean, I lose 6,000 issue to issue. We lose 6,000 newsstand distribution. Yeah. It's tough to compete with that. Just a way bigger audience. I mean, well, the internet has allowed us to reach a lot more people anyways. Um, and so what happened too, is that when we came off the internet, these people subscribed, which makes it better because it's cheaper for them. They get their magazines sooner. Mm-hmm. They, uh, and they save money and, uh, and they get, you know, it's just all around. It's a better deal. Yeah. So we put our money in advertising elsewhere and, you know, outside of a lot of the markets trying to reach uh, fly fishermen. And I'm sure. doing a podcast with a guy that does, what is that Rob? I don't know what it is. He does a, he does everything. He's an outdoorsman, but mainly he's interested in my cooking, my outdoor and wild ah, game cooking. Yeah, so yeah. he's got a food channel, but it's outdoor. It's, you know, so he does everything. I'm looking forward to that. Um, we had to cancel. He had to cancel last time. So that's coming up probably in the next couple of weeks. I think do I, that. I'm trying to think of that guy's name. Um, Steve or Dan, I don't remember. Dan? Anyway, oh, Food of Field by Snyder. Some guy named Snyder. Food of Field is what it's called. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look so, for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll look for you for that. Um, but I, I have to, I guess, for a guy who's de- devoted a majority or a good portion of his career to traditional bow hunting, how'd, how'd you get to be so passionate about it? Where did this come from? Oh, well, <clears throat> I'll go way back. Yeah. My father had picked up a couple lemonwood bows when he was in Cuba a long time ago. And so when my brother and I were growing up, we had these lemonwood longbows that you know, we were shooting them for a while and then Randy went off to college and I, we came back to the, we were living in the Philippines at the time and, and, uh, Randy was, went to engineering school and I stayed over and we came back, uh, towards the end of the war, September of 68, we moved back to the States, mm-hmm. which was a shock mm-hmm. for me after living overseas my whole life. I didn't know, I didn't know racism until I came back here, you know, where, where did you um, live for your, your, your whole life? I was born in Hawaii. Okay. And then um, we came back to the States for a while. The dad took a job, uh, ran a shipping repair facility for the Navy at Subic Bay Naval Air Station. Okay. Uh, during the Vietnam War from 63 to 68. Okay. And so, you know, from there, and I surfed there, um, did a lot of diving, a lot of fishing, um, getting a lot of trouble. You yeah, know? Sure. It's, a, it's a pretty big base. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, and, and so I got away from that. But then when we came back to the States, uh, we lived in Napa Valley. Okay. And dad was, more, you know, working at Mare Island in Oakland. So he had a commute, but it was a safe community for us who didn't live around strange people all of our life until we came back to this country. <laughs> but um, that was really weird. So, you know, we had this bow and I didn't have any arrows. So I would do chores for mom and I'd be able to go down to Grand Auto and buy for 25 cents. I got three arrows, those wooden arrows with the, the crimped on metal tips mm-hmm. on the end. I don't know if you ever yeah. saw them with feathers. So I'd be out shooting those things. And I mean, we went out, there was prune fields back then. There was, there was, Napa Valley was not a, was not a winery valley. It was a fruit and nut valley. Fruhoff farms, everybody had peaches, walnuts, almonds, prunes. Um, It was nothing but that. Then when grapes went from like a couple hundred dollars a ton to $1,400 a ton, they tore all these ancient (laughs) orchards out. Oh yeah. 
So anyways, I was be, we were out there hunting in these fields a lot. So I would go out there. I shot a couple of jackrabbits and I was always shooting at birds and stuff like that yeah. with these arrows. And so I, you know, got back into, it. I really loved it. And then, um, I ended up going into service life changed quite a bit. And I, I, you know, I traveled quite a bit. Where did you um, serve? What it, branch? Well, pardon me. What branch did you serve in? The air force. Okay. And, um, yeah, I did four years active six reserve. Okay. Uh, stationed at Mountain Home Air Force Base. And then um, after they wouldn't let me out, I had another job with the FAA at the time. That's and right. they kept me active duty. So I had to serve through the Gulf War. And then they let me out in July uh, 91. Okay. So that's when I finally got out. 91, 90. I don't remember. <laughs> Something like Somewhere that. in there. Yeah, not 90, whatever it was. Yeah, 90. And uh, 91. Uh, so anyways, uh, I took a hiatus. But then when I got stationed at Mountain Home, you know, I got back into hunting and I was gun hunting for a couple of years and I hadn't been doing that for a long time. And, um, I didn't even think about bow hunting big game. I remember people in California were doing it when I was quite younger, but I didn't pay much attention to that. And so, uh, I went up to the Wahis one day and I shot, you know, shot a four, four by four buck. And it was kind of funny on the way up there. I stopped at, you know, my friend and I got out of my Jeep. I got out to take a leak and look at the area and I, I looked down and ground the, on the old road. There's this little plastic tube and it had a green goofy looking bear on it. And I <laughs> turned it and it said, bear archery bowstring. And I'm looking at that. And I looked around and I'm going bow hunting. People are bow hunting up here. Yeah. So that's I funny. went, I, you know, so anyways, I shot the buck the next day and then I, you know, we held I, my friend killed one two days later and we got off the foothills and that was the last deer I ever shot with a, really? with a gun. Yeah. And that was in 1982, I think it was, um, something like that. And so I got back in there. Cabell's at that time put out like one catalog a year. It was this little tiny thing and maybe 30 pages. Oh, it wasn't big at all. And I mean, they, they had nothing in it. So, uh, they, you know, they got, a, they, well, they started getting bigger every year after that. But, um, then all of a sudden I said, I go look at their bows and there was yeah. no website. So you had to wait for this catalog. So I go look at their bows and, everything they have with these wheelie things. I don't know what the hell they were. I've sure. never seen one before. Right. Yeah. I'm looking for what I knew. And so the closest thing there was, it was called a bear Kodiak mag. It was uh. a wood riser, which I liked. Yeah. And it had a little tiny little wheels. So I bought that and I go, well, I guess that's, you know, that's the only thing they have. I don't, I don't see recurves or longbows that I was remember. They didn't have that stuff. And there were no archery shops where I was at. There was one in Boise and he was all compound, nothing yeah. else. And, um, he was in an old log cabin since been destroyed. But uh, so I bought this thing and it had like a burger button. I never could figure out that stupid thing. So what I did <laughs> is I took it to a friend of mine and I was, I was in Mountain Home Air Force Base. It's 45 miles to Boise. But I used to go over there. I joined the Treasure Valley Bullhunters. So I'd have their meeting once a month. I would come back over and work with them and end up running, you know, being vice president and other thing else, secretaries. And so I was always, I was, I've always been active in, in uh, archery and I, I call it, uh, it's, it's not, well, long story, but it's all disorganized archery. <laughs> so I, that's not organized. There's not, everybody's disorganized. Right. Everybody's, so I, I, that's my saying is all archery is disorganized. Sure. So am I, so is everybody. But anyway, so I bought this thing. So I took it over to Mick's house, this guy, Mick Ashby, and I had him round it. And he goes, you're crazy. I said, round that thing. I'm going to put fur on there and I'm going to shoot this thing. So that's how I was shooting it. Well, then a guy in the club had a, uh, Danny Higgs was his name. He had, he came, he had a big horn recurve, beautiful bow yep. made by Fred Asbell with the, you know, the short handle on it, which I really loved. 
And so he shot that and, and he was a fairly, he's a fairly good shot. He had a really bad uh, habit of when he'd release, he'd snap his arm down. He used to break quivers, believe it or not. The luminous, he would break quivers from, from jerking from his bow down. when he Snapping shot. So it down. Yeah. Funny. As soon as he's released it, he'd pull, he just pull his bow down. I don't know why it was just a bad habit. He probably missed more gigantic bucks than most of us will ever see in a lifetime. <laughs> I mean, I came, I mean, I hunted with him several times and I killed deer and he just, he would get too excited. He finally went to a compound, which was a shame. But anyways, so I had saved up all my money to buy one from Fred. Oh my God. First one I did is I went out and bought a, I bought a bear, a bear Kodiak, uh, one piece recurve. Yep. And I ended up shooting a bear and a deer with that, that first year. And I said, I want something different. <clears throat> so I, I, I coughed up the money. It was like 450 bucks back in 1981 or 82 to buy a, uh, it was a tremendous amount of money yeah. for a big horn recurve and a quiver and custom made and all that it would take down limbs. And then I got another set of limbs for it. And I just, I progressed on with that. And then eventually I, I started shooting longbows and okay. loved them. And I, you know, I, I still shoot recurves now and then. I haven't killed anything for with a recurve for, oh, God, I don't know. Probably the, I've got a black tail up there and a big oh, yeah. hog over there I shot in California with the recurve, and then I retired. It was a black widow recurve, and I retired it. I have it here now up there. I sold my office. I moved it to my other office here in the, on the property. But I've always shot longbows, and I like them. And then um, I just stayed with them. You know, they're not the most forgiving, but... To me, I just enjoy them. It's just, a, it's a personal preference. Yeah. You know, people have their own. There's a lot of people like self bows. I do. I like self bows too. I like recurves, but for hunting, I just prefer my longbow. <laughs> I really, I don't know. Maybe I'm just old school and I still make my own arrows. Uh, now, uh, cedar's getting good. Cedar's hard to get anymore. And I've built like 13, 15 dozen. I've got them stored, but I just uh, getting ready to build three dozen tapered um, Douglas fir shafts yep. from. Uh, not Sweetland, but um, oh, our boys over in uh, Oregon. Uh, I'll figure. I'll figure it out here in a minute. Excuse me, I'm a little dopey today. Yeah, had to get up early to go see a surgeon. I'm gonna have a hernery surgery. Hernery hernia surgery. Oof. Yeah, I know the 11th of August. So he said I'll be up in three weeks. I go. That's just pushing, just about opening the belt. I, I was gonna so. say, you're really. Are you gonna be mobile <laughs> enough to get after it? Yeah, I will be. Well, you know, I have my shoulder. Uh, rebuilt in February. I had all four rotator cuff tendons plus the bicep tendon repaired, which was major surgery. Oh. And I've got full range. I'm able to throw stuff. I can shoot my bows again in five really? months. That's yeah, pretty incredible. Well, I had a good surgeon and I was very anal and religiously doing my therapy yeah. three times, three times a day. And um, as expected. So when I went in six weeks, he goes, you're at the five month level, the, you know, because I was already you know, right now I'm able to do 30 you know, pushing, I'm, I'm putting 30 pounds over because I have to be careful, obviously still another month, but yeah. I lost all my muscle, um, the atrophy from not being able to do anything during the eight months that it was oh. bad. And then uh, after surgery, I couldn't do shit for a long time. I shouldn't say that, but <laughs> I couldn't do anything for a long time. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, and it hurt for probably about three months, but I pushed myself through all that. So I was gaining ground every day in therapy. And one thing I found out from everybody and even don thomas the same thing is that 90 percent of the failures for this type of surgery now you have to remember too if your shoulder is not a bone on bone right it's the easiest joint to, to destroy and it is the hardest one to repair okay but i you know 
I, 90% of people do not do their therapy religiously. And sure. I did, I still do it. Even though he says, you know, you just, I said, he says three days a week, just to keep it limber. It's fine. I'll do it four days, you know? Yeah. Just keep so, it, and I'm keep back it active. To getting, finally doing yoga, but I'm finally getting my strength back. And then this happens. You know? Yeah. So, uh. so anyways, I, the, the thing is this, um, we have a, I have a family, uh, not sort of a reunion, but it's just my brother and my sister and our spouses are all getting together at his house over in Washington state. Mm -hmm. And we do this once a year. It's just a gathering to discuss financial issues. I'm the, I am the trustee for his trust for his kids. And, okay. and it's just a good time. We do some water skiing, jet skiing, and lots of wine drinking and making food and Sounds sitting out there good. on the dock. Yeah. Know, yeah. It's a good time. Um, so I'm going to do that. But then after I get back, Robin and Carrie are flying out. We get back on the 19th and morning, the 20th, I have to get them to the, the airport because they're going to go back and do, then it's not the Denton Hill, but ETAR at uh, yep. Sawmill. So they're going to be doing that. So I had the earliest set. The earliest date was a week from Friday to cut me up. And I'm going, shoot, I'm trying. I'm still, I, I've solidified. It's the next date that I could, they could do it is August 11th. Yeah. So what I'm That's doing my right birthday. now is I, well, happy, happy yeah. pretty happy birthday. Yeah. And happy uh, surgery. Yeah. Well, great. <laughs> so, but if, if, if they do have a dropout, um, I'm trying to find someone who can stay with me for 24 hours here at the ranch yeah. um, on the 23rd. That's wide open. And I want to get it done as soon as possible. If I had my way, I'd have it done tomorrow. Yeah. Um, today wouldn't even be a bad day because I know <laughs> that there's going to be this curve. But he said three weeks and I should be fine. Okay. Go. Yeah. He said the first week's the, 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 the most. He said six weeks should be perfectly done. And I said, well, that gives me a chance since I've got a, I have a antelope tag for the middle of September and the season's open through September. So I still will get out there to hunt elk and deer, but. I won't be able to do much until later on in the season. So you have at least big I, plans I just, later on in the season. Well, you know, last year um, I had a rough time. Robin ended up with a brain, uh, brain clot, blood clot in the oh. brain. And that was the opening day or I should say uh, September 1st and January 30th. My friend, I we opening season for elk. Uh, he shot a cow elk first thing in the morning down by the wallow. And the next day, my daughter calls, Carrie calls and says, mom's in the hospital and she's got like a stroke. They didn't know, but it was just a, a blood clot. And oh. so that my whole season was, I had to stay home and take care of her. I, I couldn't be gone yeah. in case she had another deal. So she's hundred percent re repaired. She's, you know, she's back to herself, which was good. We were lucky um, that it was just something. I had no idea. Sure. There's no, there's nothing, nothing they can tell. We did test after test after test. They don't know how or where it came from. But it's gone, so she's you know 100% returned. And then my shoulder acted up, and I was trying to get in for surgery, and it was a real disaster because these idiots. It's like in network, there's like six to eight weeks to talk to a PA. I said, no, I want to talk to the surgeon. Mm -hmm. Oh no, you got to do this. You got to go through this crap. So I go there. They take some X-rays. She says, well, I can see there's some stuff there. I'm gonna give you some shots. I go, it's not gonna work. So she gives me two injections in the shoulder, and I said, well, I'm I'm gonna go surfing. And I she goes, well, if it doesn't help give us a call. Well, I did went down and did my surfing for two weeks in a, our annual surfing event down in California. And I really, it, it really hurt it even worse because it was already torn. You should see that the pictures are really yeah. ugly. And I come back and I called and called and called for a week. And finally I got a hold of her assistant. I said, I need you guys to, you know, to put me in for an orthogram because I need to have this, it has to be done. I said, and they said, well, it's eight weeks to talk to the surgeon after that. I go, Jesus, what's wrong with you people? You know, it's been six months. I've been trying to get something done. 
So I went out on network, got the orthogram done in 24 hours. Uh, they had it read and to me that same afternoon and said that we can have the surgery the following day, but they were out of network. Yeah. And it was 20 something thousand dollars out of pocket. Um, yeah. And I'm going, geez, you know, it's like, but at least I got the doctor I wanted. Right. And, uh, and in fact, now we're friends. I went in Friday for my last visit with him and he said, what you doing all this and found out that he's a great big bird hunter. So we're oh, nice. to go do so he's got all these leases and he's in a club. He says, I'm, you know, he says, you like waterfall? I said, yeah. I said, but it's not any good anymore. He goes, he goes, you know, you're part of the family now. I said, how about we get together this fall? Let's do some hunting in my place. I said, you're on. That is a great, so I need I said, a doctor like that. <laughs> oh, well, that, get a little of this. When I went to, Carrie's uh, the one that found out about this. I could, I was still six weeks out from getting an MRI. I said, I need an arthrogram from in, in my hospital through my network. So Carrie, my daughter, she sends me over. She takes a picture of this pamphlet. She goes, there's this Treasure Valley Hospital downtown, and it's owned by doctors. And they have a list. Uh, Arthrogram, 500 bucks. My cost was $1,800 through my insurance. Yeah. And it was still six weeks out. So I called on a Thursday night, and she goes, yeah. She goes, it's, uh, I thought, you know, 400 for the MRI. I said, I need an arthrogram. She goes, oh, what's well, $500? And, you know, that's everything. <laughs> and, um, can, you know, can you come in tomorrow? And it's Friday. I said, no, we have Zoom meetings all day. Can I come in Monday? She goes, yeah, what time? I go, 10.30. She goes, perfect. It was in 10.30. So I'm going in there, and I go to get the injection for the arthrogram. Yeah. And I talk to these two guys. And this, this one guy, he, he, he's the guy that does the injection. He comes flying in, you know, his mask hanging on his ear. He goes, this bother you? I go, no, I'm all over that shit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm all done with that. Yeah. So and he's laughing. He's got long hair. He's got, you know, hippie guy. He's got tie-dye, you know. Skull cap on, great guy. Where are you at? And he's carrying on. And he says, Oh, you'll feel a little pressure. And well, thank you. So, what do you do? I said, Well, I, you know, I, I publish a bow hunting magazine. He goes, Bow hunting. He goes, You know, our chief executive officer here is a bow hunter. I go, Small world, you know. And so he says, Okay, bud, I'll see you later. And so we're talking. The guy said, Okay, the two guys said, Well, I can't wheel it in yet. There's a girl in there, but she'll be out in about 10 minutes. I said, Fine. So we're sitting there, and this guy comes flying into the room and he goes, TJ, I'm Nick Gill. I am the CEO here. He goes, Look at this. This is the moose I shot in Idaho, my longbow and wood arrow. Yes. I've been a longtime subscriber. He's in his 60s. And so, so, and he's, you know, he called me that whole week, wanted me to talk to his, his CFO about getting the discount or finding out what the cost be for this, my, to have them do it. He said, we oh, do the in 24 hours. And I, so she never did call me. Finally, he calls me on Friday yeah, at five o'clock in the afternoon and said, Did you ever get a hold of my CFO? I said, No, she won't return phone calls. The number I got, She's in Northern Idaho. And so he goes, and I told him about Dr. Lynch. He says, well, Joe's a good friend of mine. He's the best surgeon. He's the guy I wanted. He only does elbows and shoulders. And he's the number one shoulder surgeon in, in the state, as far as I'm concerned. And so he was the guy, he was the number one guy I wanted. Thankfully, he was in network, but his company in the hospital or not. So he says, this was on a Friday. He says, well, listen, he says, I'll call him Monday and see if I can get you in to see him. I said, yeah, okay, good luck with that. Yeah. So he calls me at noon. He says, Joe, see you at any time this afternoon, 2.30 or 3. I go, really? He says, they're going to call you next. And the phone rang. And it's them. And so I was in there. I went to see him. He's looking at my stuff like that. He says, oh, my God, they missed. Because we're looking at the radiology. He yep. said, well, they missed this bicep issue, which is major. And he said, and that, he said they didn't even discuss that. And he found another tear later, you know, lower down in the tendon. So I asked him, I said, what's the options? Will it repair itself? He goes, absolutely not. I said, okay. I said, so surgery is it? He goes, yes. I said, can you fix me? He goes, 100%. Nice. I said, book it. Let's go. 
So it was, it went, you know, but he only does surgery on Thursdays. So it was still three weeks out, four weeks out to get the surgery. So I got it done. It was easy. And then um, like, he called me 24 hours later when, after I got out of surgery and he says, look, he says, TJ he says, uh, he says, it's a good thing that you had your surgery. You pushed it. And I said, pushed it. It was eight months to get to where you could cut on me. He said, he said, your bicep almost was about ready to burst. He Oof. said, if that had happened, he said, that would have been major surgeries and you may have lost some use of your arm. He said, we fixed it and you'll be fine. Oh man. And so, so you, yeah, you so almost no, were done. What would you have done? If you no shoulder, are you uh, using the mouth tab or are you switching to a, do I see a crossbow in your future? No, 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 I don't think so. No, I probably just, uh, I just want to get it back to where I could surf. That's all. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Adelaide. No, uh, I thought about switching arms, Yeah. you know, I mean, but I'd still be able to shoot now, you know, and that's the strange thing is shooting the bow was the only thing that didn't hurt really this whole last two years. That's the only thing I could do that. I couldn't lift anything. I, you know, I couldn't throw a rock for the dogs my, or a ball for the dog or you'd throw anything. It hurt so damn bad. I throw it. And I'd just be in tears, you know, everything hurt. And, um, now I was up in Alaska here fishing with some friends, uh, last couple of weeks and, uh, we did really good. We think we got about 600 pounds of filleted fish out of that group for nice. 10 of us. And so, um, but I'm up there and I was hauling in halibut. I hauled in, uh, my two, uh, alive King salmon and caught tons of rockfish, and it was a lot of fun. And, um, you know, so it's like, I'm shooting a bow again and then this happens. It's yeah. like, damn it. You know, I'm getting back, but that was the only thing I could do was shoot a bow. So, a year ago in February, I was down in Texas. My friends shot my two Avelina, no pain, except for I couldn't lift with that arm, you know, so I'm carrying the damn thing in one hand and yeah. strap around here. And, <laughs> and so I'm still an invalid for the last couple of years. And then um, in August, I went down and was bow fishing in Lake Okeechobee with a bunch of friends and uh, ended up shooting a nine and a half foot alligator, 9.6 foot alligator with my longbow which is being mounted into a coffee table. Oh, that's Mind very you, cool. It should be here by the end of next month. That's, so it's been a long pull, but we had fun. We shot armored catfish. I shot a giant tilapia, which is ridiculously, it's in this latest or last issue. Um, and then a mullet that must've been three pounds. I've never seen a mullet that big. No one had. When took it into the, took the photo into these guys and they go, oh my God, we never seen mullets out here. And that's they, funny. They're, they're, they're bow fishing guys. So I did that and then, you know, everything was fine. And then I went out, I got out for one day and I had someone watching Robin September, the last day of, of antelope season. I just went out and did some stalking. I saw one buck and that was it. And that was my day. And then uh, the last day of the late archery season is the 30th November here on our ranch area. And so I went up the foothills. I thought, I'm just going to go out for a day. Robin was fine at that time. So I go up there. I, I'm into 160, 170 elk. Really? My elk tag, my elk tag's not good in unit 39. It was for, another zone yeah so i put up my deer tag was good i didn't see one stinking deer i saw <laughs> a lot of idiots on atvs going through posted gates and it's a mess you know and it just i finally i just got disillusioned with it and i left and um that was my hunting season last year and i didn't want to lose it again but i'm going to lose some of it this year again so well you'll hopefully but, make up a little ground when you can hunt yeah, well, you know, we had, uh, I had, I was going to do, I was going to head up north and spend a couple weeks hunting bear and turkey and mm -hmm. do some steelhead fishing this spring. And that was thrown out the, the door with the surgery, but I had to get it done. Yeah. Um, now I can toss a fly. I'm doing okay. I mean, so now I'm getting better and now I'm going to have a hernia surgery. <laughs> it's like, 
what else can go wrong? Just keep adding them on. (laughs) Holy cow. Well, that's, that's awesome. That's a, uh, that's an interesting story, uh, especially to see, you know, how the magazine began uh, and where it is today. And, you know, it's online, it's in print. And it's funny, one of the, the things that prompted me to call and get a hold of you, um, I was camping, this was actually a while back, um, a couple of years ago in Yellowstone. And I see this eight-year-old kid uh, sitting and, and reading a traditional bow hunting magazine. <laughs> Good. I'm like, (laughs) I was like, you know, I got to let him know because, uh, that's what you want. You want him to start small. And his parents didn't, I I went up to him and I talked to him. I asked him about it because you just don't see that, that very much, uh, random, you know? So anytime I see any bow hunter, I, I end up talking to him, but, um, he's like, yeah, we don't, we don't hunt. Uh, my son just really wanted to get into archery. So we went into the archery shop and got him some, you know, bow equipment and got him a magazine. So, uh, he good. was digging into it, uh, so good, good to see a, a kid getting into it. Well, you know, it's, <clears throat> I was asked, I've been asked several times, you know, it, we're living in strange times, and uh, like I said, the internet, everyone's got a short attention span, and we're yeah. trying to bring in more women and more young, younger, I mean, hey, you know, when I started this magazine, I was 30-something years old. Yeah. I'm going to be 65 this year, so it's like, I asked Rob, and I said, you know, how the hell did I get this old? She goes, well, you didn't die. You didn't so, die yet. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you didn't die. So I get up every morning. I thank God for opening up my eyes and having more breath. So, you know, it's all good. And uh, and I enjoy what I do. It's uh, it's still a job. Yeah. And it's, you know, no one's getting rich, but it's a good living. The mainly, I don't I don't make any money off the magazine. I don't take anything. But I, my employees are paid very well. My contractors are paid very well. Um and so we're still, you know, we've, uh, we were losing money for several years after Larry passed away because the market was crashing and mm-hmm. we finally got back to being profitable and we're, we're seeing a good return again. We're seeing growth, which is good. First yeah. time since about 84, or excuse me, 2014. Yeah. We're seeing good growth and which is great. And we're, like you say, we're seeing more and more young people get involved or at least asking questions. And that's a good thing. That's a big because, deal. Yeah. Well, you know, mentoring is the number one thing we can do to, to see the growth. And I remember years ago, the Pope and Young Club did a huge study on uh, bow hunters. Yeah. And at that time, out of all the bow hunters, which are, I don't know how many tens of millions there are, 17% were traditional. That's a pretty big market. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very big market. And I think that you're seeing a lot more of that because there's some people are they are using both bows or they're going back you know even mr james now he's, he's back to shooting his recurve an awful lot and you know he went from recurve to compound and then he's always liked it so he's posting pictures of him with some big white tails he's killed in the last few years with his recurve and it's great you know yeah. marion james who owns bow, owned bow hunter he's mm-hmm. a really good friend of mine i've known him for probably i don't know 35 years something like that and we've worked together and uh, we're both on the board of the archery hall of fame here in the united states um, yeah, that's along with some other great guys. I I, th- I think we've we've seen a little bit of a growth, or at least an interest of it, um, just by how many people uh, reach out um, to us to ask questions about it. Um, but I wonder if social media, um, just to see a, a, a recurve or a longbow, especially a wooden one in a picture, it's like oh. very romantical. You know, it's it's like you see it and you're like, I want to uh, <laughs> I want to go do that. And I think social media actually helps traditional archery uh, in that way. It does. Um, 
it's unfortunate that sometimes, you know, we're living in a bubble, right. Uh, in some, some aspects, but social media is allowing us to reach some other people. I hate dealing with it. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's time consuming. And, and like you say, it's a lot of times there's so much crap out there on the, internet. Oh yeah. So much. And it, I mean, it's like, I remember when the start, I said, no, I'm not going to go online. I don't want to email and blah, blah, blah. It's like, now you can't live without them. One thing that I hate is this little cell phone thing. It okay. controls a lot of your life these days. You know what happened? I just, when I, we were, when we were up fishing in Alaska here a couple weeks ago, it's, we do it every year. A friend of mine owns Homer Ocean Charters. He's got a big 60 foot yacht that he, he does uh, the blacktail hunting off Kodiak Island off his boat. He awesome. does bear hunting in the spring, but fishing is a big part of what they do. And so we do this every year. So it's, uh, it's for my friends, um, writers, advertisers, and then we get together and then, um, and it's him and his son. And, and then we have usually one, we have one spot that's a rotating person. Yeah. So there's 10 of us that go out and we spend, we spend five nights, six nights on the yacht. We go out to sea, but it was funny cause you know, we, everything's working fine on the phone and we get to Sedolvia and we get inside that cove and the weather's terrible for two days. We're weathered in there. So we tried to fish, didn't catch anything. It was just seas were, you know, pushing eight, 10 feet. And so we were pretty much locked inside. They were going out, but we're coming back and staying in the, that little cove. But I was able to get online uh, uh, internet from the bar where all the other guys were up there getting shit faced. I stayed <laughs> down in the. I had a drink and smoked a cigar on the bow of the boat. I enjoyed myself for the evening. Like a gentleman, and, and yeah, th- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been doing the bar scene. I don't need to do that yeah. anymore. <laughs> so it's too expensive. But that's another story. But um, anyway, so. I'm sitting down there and then we go out to sea. And so I'm on airplane mode so I can take pictures and all that stuff. And we come back into Homer. I have no service. I can't get Wi-Fi. I can't, I got, everybody else has got the Verizon. They've got service, nothing on my phone. Nothing's working at all for two days. And I realized my, my tickets are on here, you know, oh, my plane to get tickets out. to get out of here. So yeah, so I, I and unfortunately, what happened is that I still had an email that my wife had sent me my itinerary, so that would pull up. At least I knew what the numbers and I could get something. So what happened is that you know we get on the fly out of Homer the two days after we get back, and I just leave it on because it's not working, right? So I leave on my phone, and you know, we get up just climbing up. It's a 35, 40 minute flight to Anchorage from yep. Homer, and all of a sudden my phone starts chirping. I'm going to look at it. Pretty soon, texts are rolling in. Yeah. Then emails are rolling. Oh in, yeah. And it's working again. I go. It was nice when it wasn't working. Well, it was weird. <laughs> you realize just you realize how much we depend on these stupid things. Yeah, and we do. We, we I think we rely on because this thing here, this is this is a hell of a computer. Yeah, and it also makes phone calls. Yeah, okay, that's <laughs> but right. It does everything. <laughs> I trade stocks. I could you know make doctor's appointments, ordered my drugs or whatever. You know you can do anything on that thing and still make phone calls. But you realize it's 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 actually become too important i mean look at the kids today i'm almost everybody even adults i see this stuff all the time oh right? yeah everybody's looking in the phone and they're not talking to each other I go to a restaurant couples never talk to each other they're they're playing with their each of them playing with their phones it's like what have we become just mind numb fools and yeah. it's like and i understand technology is the way to go but there's sometimes like well i always shut off my ringer yeah and and i never ever call anybody back because that's i don't have a landline anymore but when they call my office, it comes to this phone, but I never ever make the mistake anymore of not shutting off my caller ID because I've called some people 
back on this doing business calls, they get my phone number and they'll call two, three times a week and just want to BS. It's like, guys, I am working. I know. You have... I don't have time for this. Okay. I love you, but yeah, you have to give me some space. So, well, but the mor- it is. moral of the story is put down the phone, pick up a traditional bow, <laughs> preferably a long bow. Go out and shoot. Well, That's you know, right. it's get outside. You know, it's like, you know, it's funny that you bring this up because, uh, you know, Luke Johnson, Northern Idaho. Mm-hmm. Well, he mentioned something and he said, you know, that he brings people that they hate the word traditional and it's just bow hunting. And it's really strange because when I started this, the magazine, I was trying to figure out, well, how do we differentiate ourselves? What everyone was calling modern, they were calling it modern bow hunting is what everything the compound were. And, you know, and I shot a compound where there's no, we have no animosity. The thing was, we were not getting any representation in any of the magazines out there. Uh, for anything traditional i mean there's nothing you know the history was disappearing and that was the main thing is that we wanted to keep a lot of this history alive and some of this other stuff and then just show the fun the pure joy of just going out in the woods doesn't matter if you're going to kill anything but going on the woods with a with a wood bow you know and a wood arrow i mean and it's go try to sneak really close to something that's really hard to do it's hard to explain that to somebody as to why you know yeah Believe me, if I was a gun hunter, everything would be dead in the world. I did, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous. And yeah. People, I remember when I drew that my first scope permit in Washington. It was 15 years here in Idaho. I didn't draw five years in Washington State before I drew, coveted of one of six tags. And so I had a brand new longbow that didn't show up until the night before I was to go on my first trip in. Never even shot it. I took it out, shot it a bunch that night. I said, okay, that's it. So I'm going up there and everyone says, you're taking a gun, aren't you? I said, why? Well, you know, that's a rare once in a lifetime possibility. I said, if I shot it with a gun, it wouldn't mean anything to me. I mean, it, I mean, it's nothing, there's nothing against gun hunting um, at all. And in fact, I, I, I don't mind doing that. I'm thinking seriously about take, picking up a, one of these leftover, you know, cow elk tag or mm-hmm. cow moose tags, just go shoot a, shoot one for meat. Yeah. But uh, you know, it wouldn't mean anything in the, in the grand scheme of things to me. Cause I want to do it my way. I want it to be tough. I want it to, you know, I want to, I don't know. It's just the. It's it's I the way I'm that weird. you and not and not everybody chooses it, and that's fine. But I know what you mean. Um, it, you you pick a way that you, the way that you want it to work, and the way that you've kind of dedicated yeah. your skills to, and it just doesn't feel the same to do it another way. Well, no, and it's <clears throat> it's kind of a personal quest, and it's like you know I'm not out there to shoot the biggest anything. In fact, I'm a trophy hunter until the first legal animal gets in the way. Right. So this is probably why, you know, not, my biggest elk is probably a five by five because I've shoot a ton of cows and yeah. small ones because it, it, I want to put an elk in the freezer every year because it's a tremendously fine eating animal. Yeah. Um, probably one of the, one of my favorites next to caribou and, and wild pigs. Um, they're all good eating, but um, so it's like, but like I said, it's like, I've been lucky enough to, to shoot some awful big animals Yeah. and it's only because the opportunity presented itself. I didn't, hold out. I didn't, you know, go out there with that in my mind is to shoot this, you know, this number six mountain caribou back here or number 12, you know, Canada moose that's in the museum. Actually, it's being delivered back here now, um, this next month or September. Um, you know, it just, it happened and yeah. it was just, yeah, it's a blessing, but that's not what I, you know, yeah, you're more, you're hungrier, out. hungrier than but, you are interested in uh, headgear. Well, you know, I just want it, the process is more important to me than the end result. So if I don't kill anything, that's fine. If I had a good hunt, 
and I saw some animals and get just, just to get out in the woods, you know, and like when I take my daughter, we sit down, we'll make a cup of coffee or have lunch in some deep, nasty white, you know, or a big wet forest someplace yep. you know, laying in a huckleberry patch. That is, that makes up for anything. I don't yeah. need to breathe. I, I don't have to kill anything. And so I think that that's what you try and propel when we say traditional is that it's, you know, just realizing that it's to make it, if you want the challenge, it's there. You don't have to accept it. Yep. And I always felt, you know, like they, I call it a timeline, you know, down here, it's like, you want to kill something right off the bat, you know, you're new and you're young, you've got to kill something. I don't care if it's a fish or you, <laughs> like my father took me out and put me on his shoulder and was shooting rabbits and I'm holding on to it. Like, Dad goes bang, you know, he's holding up <laughs> right. and rabbit. I want to kill a rabbit, you know? So you, you kill stuff. So you say you start off with a gun and then pretty soon you want to try something different. It could be a compound. It could be a muzzle loader, and you you go down to maybe some people are out there hunting with spears and knives. Okay? Sure. Eventually, you come back down this timeline until you find where you are comfortable in your hunting at that time, and you may stay there. You may wander back and forth. You may go to the extremes, but you found this little niche right yeah, here your in thing. this timeline. And so, you know, that's important is that to you to experience that, and and where you stay, that's I, I don't I don't there is none of this us versus them crap. And I keep hearing this by some people that keep trying to push this. I say the difference between traditional and modern is only the equipment used. It's not a mentality. Right. Uh, we all have the same ethics. Well, we should, most people do. And we still have the same dreams and aspirations. We're just going at it a different way. Right. And, um, and I have a good friend, two good friends that they switched back to compound because they just were missing and they lost it. And I understand that there's nothing wrong with that. I haven't, you know, a total respect and good friends and I'll share a camp and, and we're, you know, we go bow fishing all the time together. Yeah. And, uh, and that's their, that's whatever they are. And they're always welcome to my camp. So I don't see this animosity. It's, no. I think it's, it's, it pretty much in the beginning, we were always bad mouth, you know, like you all you do guys is wound stuff. I go, the data do not support that. I go look at several, of these uh, studies. In fact, the best ones in McAllister, McAllister which is bow hunting only and traditional, if I'm correct, in uh, Oklahoma. And it's a federal installation and there's only so many people are allowed to deer hunt it. And they had, well, I think it's just bow hunting only, it's not traditional. But they found out that traditional people had the lowest uh, wounding rates, mm. mainly because they don't take those long shots, they follow up on them, they'll take their time. Yeah. And, and we're, you know, a lot of people, they still have the, you know, like the Chuck Adams mentality because he can punch things at 80 to a hundred yards. So not everybody can do that. No, he's a bit unique in that way. Yeah. But even then, you know, you can same thing. Say there's an elk out there, elk's a big animal and it's sitting there, say it's feeding. You, you release that arrow and in a second and a half, it can take a step. You've got shot it. Yeah. It's yeah. Far, it's, it's know? not, not the same. So I think that that's probably part of the reason why that study showed that there was less wounding loss with traditional is because they take shorter shots. Yep. They follow up more than anybody else. They know where they shot the arrow at. And that's what they were finding out is that when they were talking to them, the shot distances were like twice as much. The compound guys were shooting twice as far because they could, they had the yeah. ability. Yep. And, uh, but they also weren't sure they shot and some, a lot of them and some of the wounding loss, they weren't sure. And, um, so, but that was one of the better studies I saw, but that's, that's not here nor there, but that's, I'm just saying that this, this thing saying that 
one or the other loses more. Everybody, anyone who says they never lost an animal is a liar, or they never really. Oh no, them. you're you're gonna lose them, and I mean it happens. Switching to, to traditional will be tr challenging for people from, with compounds, and that's fine. But at the end of the day, like you said, uh, we're all kind of uh, encouraging, you know, the the fair chase, you know, good hunting ethics out there, and so. Um, well, enjoy yourself. That's yeah, enjoy your and just have, have fun. fun. Exactly. It's we're all kind of doing the same thing and just really, I mean, you spend ninety nine percent of your time hunting, just hanging out outside, uh, not actually shooting anything. So you better, you know, get comfortable with that and, and get used to it. So, well, well hey, we're uh, coming up on time here. Um, okay. TJ, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, tell us your story and tell us a little bit about the background of, of your magazine um, for people who want to subscribe uh, and or want to see you online uh where can they go uh just go to you can go to traditionalbullhunter.com or tradbow.com either one t-r-a-d-b-o-w we own both of them so but uh if you can get the website there's it's that's the best way to do it reach us you can go see what's on the website you know, mess around there's i don't think we have chat forms anymore there might be some minor ones those are nightmares, believe me. There's too I many people who know us. So, but there's a lot of stuff going on there. We have unique uh, stories, a lot of how-tos. There's a lot of good information on our website, uh, merchandise and things like that, but also a way to subscribe. And um, maybe they just want to do digital issues. That's a lot cheaper just to see what it's like. Um, and I'm always available. Anybody can always contact me. My, my email's in every magazine and I do answer them. <laughs> as long as I'm around. Yep. Sometimes I'm gone, but uh, yeah. So anyways, that's the best place to find us. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming on. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Boga Hunting Podcast. If you guys like what you hear and want to follow along on what we're currently up to, hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on and follow us on Instagram at Boga Hunting. Join us next week and we'll see you then.